Hey everybody, welcome to Tara and Andrew versus the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide. The world's snappiest, <laughs> most snappiest named podcast. Rolls right off the tongue. Rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, I'm Tara. I'm Andrew. So this is the 27th in our 3,726 part series, wherein we choose a movie at random from the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide, watch it, do some research, and tell you what we thought and what we learned. The cardinal rule there is that the movie does have to be selected at random. As long as it's a movie that we haven't seen, we are honor-bound to watch it, uh, with a couple of exceptions, which we will invoke as necessary. So last episode, we talked about The Thief of Baghdad, and we kind of enjoyed it. There are some things we didn't enjoy as much about it. Very colorful. Very colorful, which was cool. Didn't rate as highly on the our newly invented How Racist Is This Movie scale. As we initially expected. Yeah, so that, that was a plus. Yeah. Pleasant surprise. It really enriched my life with the uh, air mustache it has. fluffing. Tara will not stop doing that. She's yeah. doing it right now. It's air fluffing of a fake mustache. It doesn't translate to audio. I've got the fluffiest air mustache. It's luxurious. But that was my pick from the last episode, so it is now Tara's turn to pick a movie. So I will begin flipping at random through the guide, and you will let me know when to stop. That was the most pathetic stop ever. No, it worked. You got me to stop. Okay. You got one. So you have selected The Circle. It was made in 2000. Banned in Iran. Uh, director Panahi's drama of women's lives under the strictures of Islamic law in Iranian society is a harrowing portrait that resembles a police state. Women scramble through streets, dodging cops like fugitives and searching for a land where they too have rights. Even a quiet moment with the cigarette is denied. A mix of the poetic and the polemic, the film is oddly abstract and untethered, with men little more than anonymous authority figures, and women rarely more than roughly sketched martyrs. It is Panahi's passion, his anger, and most importantly, his sensitivity to moment-by-moment sensations and the more subtle realities of these women's status that bring the film alive as it returns, full circle, to where it began, ready to start the cycle over again. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, what a movie to pick on International Women's Day. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, we are <laughs> recording this on March 8th. Yeah. So, very apropos. Yeah. Um, reminds me of uh, Persepolis a little bit from the description. Sure. Which you've not read, but it's no. really good. It's right there. It's right on our bookshelf. Way right to there. shame me. <laughs> shame. We will be back with our thoughts and opinions on The Circle after this musical interlude. Voices are, are both totally fucked up still. We're not actually sick anymore. We're just, we're doing a lot of screaming at each other last night. <laughs> just screaming and screaming. Well, it's what we usually do. Yeah. But we just were even more enthusiastic. Yes. Than normal. Yeah. So anyway, we just finished watching The Circle. And uh, I don't know. I don't have any woody banter to yeah. launch into before we just do the rating. So should we just, you know, square up our ratings? I don't know. Yeah. Try. Okay, the, it's okay. <laughs> no shape-based humor. It's fine. It's, 
No forced shaping. <laughs> if it comes up naturally, then we'll work it in. But... You're saying that wasn't natural? Uh, no, it was <laughs> natural. We'll give our ratings here in a moment uh, on the five-point scale, uh, rigorously tested five-point scale, ranging from don't watch to maybe don't watch to eh, to maybe watch, and then the, the pinnacle of our rating scale, don't not watch. One, two, three... Maybe Don't watch. Not watch. Okay. I can I totally understand that. I it's not necessarily a fun movie to watch, I would say. No. But it is very well done and it's very effective at what it sets out to do. And I definitely liked watching it. So Yeah, for sure. It's one of those movies where it doesn't spoon feed everything to you. Which can be, you know, you have to be in the right kind of frame of mind for it. So just knowing that from that offset, I think, would help. You know, I kind of struggled with that. This is definitely a movie that I think you could do multiple watchings and learn more. Yeah. Um, pretty easily. Yeah, for, for sure. Like, we just, even after we finished watching it, I don't want to speak for you necessarily, but I'll say that I was like, what was, what happened there at the yeah. very end? So I'm like, let me, we need to roll it back at least and watch the first bit of it the first few minutes again just so i can see if i missed anything because there were a couple of things that like you said are mm-hmm. not clearly spelled out it, some of it's left up to your interpretation some of it you just kind of have to piece together yeah they don't bang it over your head yeah like it happens with a lot of movies yeah but the, the fact that i wanted to go back and rewatch the beginning of it again that i wasn't just like oh fuck this obtuse ending we actually, like, we went straight into watching, like, some of the special features on the DVD also, which we typically do not really do yeah. after we watch something. It's, like, the fact that we were both kind of compelled to watch the 20-minute the Q&A session with the, the director and, and things like that, I think, really speaks to how engaging it is. Yeah, it's engaging. There's a lot of opportunity for the audience to come up with their own ideas of where people end up or why they ended up in the situations they're in. Yeah. So, no, just like I really like the, the way that a lot of the shots were just framed, even. Yeah, for sure. The film focuses on there's four main female characters that it really focuses on, but there's other kind of shorter stories of other female characters. But a lot of the times, like the camera just is focused on them solely, and so you hear what's going around on them, and you're kind of watching their reaction to what's going on around them. But you don't know you're reliant on their facial expressions and and things like that to glean. Yeah. What's happening. Right. Or what, what the impacts might be. Yeah, so it's really very interestingly directed. Yeah. Shall we uh, move on to a more detailed discussion of the plot? Yeah, let's. So the film starts off with a lot of labor groans. It's not entirely clear what's happening. At yeah. first it's like a black screen and there's just like showing Just the like credits, the opening credits. And you just hear a woman wailing in, in pain. You don't hear any baby yeah. sounds or anything like that, or like doctor noises. It's just right. the wailing. Yeah, and so they, just like watching them, like, okay, this is setting a tone for the movie right out of the gate. It's not pulling oh, any yeah, punches. Oh, yeah, not at all. So you're really kind of just immediately dropped into this mood, the tone of the movie, before you even see anything. Yeah. So essentially there's an, a, an older woman who... Walks up to a window after a nurse is calling for the family of a, a woman who just given birth in the United She had a baby girl. She's like, a girl? You sure? She's like, yep, it's a girl. And then the window closes. The woman kind of stands there. 
And then after a moment, knocks again on that little window. Another nurse comes up and the woman asks, hey, can you confirm? Did this person have their baby? What is it? And the woman says, oh, yeah, it's a baby girl. And the woman says, you know, are you are you really sure it was a girl? Because the ultrasound showed it was going to be a baby boy. And she's like, oh, yeah, that happens sometimes. It's a girl. And the woman's like, crap, this is my daughter. Her in-laws are going to insist on a divorce. They're all set on having a boy. And the nurse is like, oh, it'll work out. Don't fine. worry, it'll be fine. So, no, it doesn't sound like it's going to work out fine. Uh, it doesn't sound too great. From, from what little we've heard so far in the first two minutes of this movie. Yeah. The older mother starts kind of walking through the hospital and going down some stairs where she runs into one of her uh, her other daughters or, or a niece or something and says, go call your uncles. Uh, she had a baby girl. It wasn't a baby boy. And so this woman's like, oh, crap. And she runs outside to go to the payphone. And there we're introduced. We're, <laughs> we basically are thrust into the story of three other women. That's kind of something that happens several times throughout the movie. It just like switches over to the perspective of another character and they're like just left kind of dangling, not really knowing what has happened to the people that you were just focusing on a minute before. There's no... No no closure. No, yeah, no resolution to the, those stories, which made me a little uncertain at first because it, it's just kind of throwing this all at you and, and changing the perspective. Just like, wait, what is going on? So it's a little hard to keep up at first. Yeah, for sure. I think especially going into it blind and not knowing yeah. what we're in for. Yeah. Um, definitely took us some work to figure out what was happening. Um, but yeah. So the uh, perspective switches over to following these three women that are at the phone booth. And and they just seem kind of frantic and, and, and worried. They're like, well, what are we going to do? You know, who, who has the gold chain? We need to sell the gold chain and go get some money. And so one of them runs off. She's like, I'll, I'll go sell this and get us some money real quick. Just stay right here. And as she is leaving, some guy is walking by at, and talks to the other two women, uh, Nargas and Arezu. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, are you, are you two alone? And Arezu is like, this just gets her pretty agitated, kind of sets her off. And she's like, what did you just say? And she goes chasing after him and starts arguing with him. And yeah. so Nargas is just kind of left there by herself. And uh, she's the main character that we follow throughout this first part of the movie. And so it's following them as they, like their their other friend, the third woman, gets arrested. And, the one trying to sell the chain. Right. She gets arrested and the, the two of them are like, well, she had papers. I thought that you know, we'd be okay. But apparently whatever paperwork they had was not sufficient for them to avoid getting arrested. So they realized that they're in much worse shape than they originally thought they were. And so they're like, well, we need to find a way to get some money. And so they go off through Tehran trying to find a way for them to get back to their, their hometown. To, to get back to Nargis's hometown. In any case, they're trying to get to this town. Nargis yeah. had uh, grown up and, and so it follows them around as they are trying to get some money. And Arezo is more clearly in charge between the two of them. She knows her way around a little bit better. She knows who to go to to try to get money. And so it shows that the two of them are wandering around town trying to make contact with this other woman that they had known, Puri. And they go to her father's newsstand and he's not there. She isn't there either. They don't really get any help there and so they go into this other marketplace and Arezu goes off and, and leaves Nargis by herself while she goes off with this other guy to do whatever we don't even know what she's meeting them for to she yeah there, it's not explained what she does to yeah. get money from them yeah she just she just leaves Nargis there by herself and is like you, you stay here I'll be back in a little bit 
she's just gone and, and shows Nargis on her own, wandering a little bit around the, the streets there, looking in shop windows and stuff. And you really get this sense of isolation that the things can turn real bad in a moment's notice. Yeah, not just isolation, but vulnerability. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, she just is kind of so wide-eyed, but has this black eye and just seems so kind of lost and vulnerable, as, as I said. So luckily, like, Arizu comes back and she got the money somehow. And she like, she's like, let's go. We'll go to the bus station and we'll get out of here. So they leave, they, they get to the buses, and then Arezu is like, I can't go with you, you just, you need to go by yourself, take this money. And Nargis is really hesitant to do this, because they had been in it together, and now she's just, it feels like she's being shunted off yeah. on this bus, just being abandoned. But after some sort of back and forth, Nargis finally gets on the bus, and gets off at the last stop, and she's at a, a station, and so we're following Nargis trying to get a bus ticket, and the guy at the counter is unwilling to sell her a ticket because she's not accompanied by a man. First he's like, no, there's no seats, there's no seats. And and Norris is like, anything, any I don't care. Just is there any seat? And then in the back and eventually he says, Oh yeah, there are seats in the very back of the bus and Norris is like, that's fine. I just want a seat. And the guy's like, okay, well do you have a student ID? Norris says, it's oh no, I don't have it on me. And the guy's like, look, unless you have a student ID or you're accompanied by a man, there's no way I can sell you a ticket. That's just the rules. And Nargis pleads with the guy and says, you know, I really have to get back home. There's nothing I can do. I don't have the ID on me. I am a student. And eventually she convinces the guy to sell her a bus ticket. So she gets that and she goes and finds the bus, talks to the driver and says, okay, how long before you're leaving? 10 minutes. Okay, great. I have to go do something and I'll be back. And so she goes back into the station and finds a little shop where they they sell clothing. And so she says that she's buying a shirt for her fiancé. And, and there's this scene where the, the guys in the shop kind of help her out. Taking their time, too. Taking, but they're taking their time. Like, and so Andrew and I were watching and getting, like... Anxious. Like, increasingly anxious. anxious like, yeah. you only have ten minutes. What yeah, are you what, doing? Why, why did you get a, to go get a shirt right now? What do you... Yeah. You went through this whole ordeal to get to this spot you know obviously things were very stressful and you don't really know exactly what the situation is but obviously she's in a bad way for some reason <coughs> and her friend did who knows what to get her this money for a bus ticket and you're just gonna like dawdle in a store yeah she doesn't seem like particularly hurried or concerned that it's no. taking this seemingly lengthy amount of time yeah anyway so she finally gets the shirt she starts walking through the station and going down some stairs toward the bus and she stops and immediately turns around and runs up the stairs. And we're like, what the hell is she doing now? Because yeah. um, so it's not showing us anything. It's just showing No, it just her. shows her. Yeah. And so you can see that she is taken aback. And she just runs the other way. So eventually she runs upstairs and, and she ends up by some windows and looks down toward the bus and realizes a bunch of police officers are there and they're checking everybody getting onto the bus. So she's like, well, crap. That's not going to work out. Now what do I do? So she starts wandering through Tehran and tries to go back to find that woman, Pari, that they were trying to look for earlier. So she goes back to the the newsstand that they'd been at before. This time she's able to get information out of the, the kid that's running it. And it's like, oh, you need to go to this address that's a couple of streets down in the alley. Just So she goes off and it's this back alley, pretty sketchy looking house. And she knocks on the door and this guy answers and, and Nargis is like... A, 
I'm trying to find Pari, and he's not willing to help her at all. She's, she's just, like, standing outside the just, door. Yeah, she's standing outside the door, and then eventually she just is like, well, I guess I'm just gonna leave then, and as she's leaving, this motorbike comes down the alleyway, and these two dudes come in, force their way into the apartment, and you can hear a lot of shouting, but you don't, it's, again, as a case of you not knowing what's going on, you're just seeing these two dudes force their way into the apartment, and the door is, like, rattling, and then eventually Parib escapes the apartment and gets in a cab, drives off. We don't see Nargis again. We don't know what happens to her. And it's just following Pari now. And we don't really know what's going on with Pari. Yeah, what we kind of find out is that both Pari and Nargis had been prisoners and that they had... It sounded like they'd escaped, but then reading the description, it seemed more like they were released on a temporary basis or like... Yeah, they were like on a temporary leave or something. Yeah, from the prison. So they'd, they'd all been prisoners together. And so Paris is going and trying to, again, like Nargis and Arezzo had been doing before, trying to make connections with people she had known in prison. And so eventually, like, she, she goes to a couple of different uh, locations, like a theater. She meets somebody she knew there, and she's directed to uh, the hospital where one of the other people that she was in prison with works. And so she goes in and she manages to, to track down this other woman, Elham. And actually, before that, they find out that her husband had been executed while they were yes. in prison. Yes. So she's trying to get to the hospital and she's talking to one of the people that she'd met up with earlier. And they're like, oh, do you you were married. What happened to your husband? And she's like, oh, he was executed three or four months ago. And they're like, oh, that's, that's horrible. Like, what, did you get to see him at all before he was killed? And she's like, they gave us one last night together. And um, then we find out when she gets to the hospital that she must have gotten pregnant during that one last night because she needs to get an abortion. She's four months pregnant, is what she tells her, and so she's been having a really hard time getting anybody to do this for her because she's, you know, a woman on her own in Iran, and that's yeah bad, bad place to be. Bad place to be as a woman on your own. Uh, so everywhere she she starts explaining to Elham that everywhere she'd gone to, they need the father of the baby to sign off and she's like well he's been executed there's no way it's like well then you need your father and his father to sign off on the abortion and she's like yeah and that's also not going to happen so elham what can you do for me i need your help like your husband's a doctor surely you guys can help get me situated you know somehow and elham explains that her husband has no idea about her past and she's really tried to hide that from him she doesn't ever want him finding out that she was in prison it's like she doesn't even want to leave the area because she's afraid that it'll be exposed if they go yeah. to the checkpoint yeah because her husband um we find out her husband's from pakistan and pari asks well why haven't you gone to visit his family in pakistan and alham says well the thing is if i get checked at the border it might come out that i was in prison before and i don't want him finding out alham is essentially not willing to do anything to help Pari. She's like, I'm sorry, I can't jeopardize my situation. Pari ends up leaving the hospital and is out wa- wandering around the streets of Tehran. Just, yeah, totally kind of adrift and without any idea of what else she can do to get the help that she needs. And then as she's walking around the streets, she sees this woman and her daughter, and she picks up a toy that the daughter had dropped. And it's like, oh, I think you, you dropped this. So they thank her. And then, yeah, so Pari asks if, if there's any place to stay right around the corner there's a, a hotel she goes in there and she gets scared off because i think there's like soldiers there is that what it was it, it might have been soldiers or or just uh patrols 
And in any case, we find out that she wouldn't have been allowed to rent her anyway because she's a woman off her own. So she goes back out and she sees that like this lady that she just was talking with is gone. And her daughter is still there and her daughter's crying and, and by herself. And she's like, where did your mom go? And the girl's like, I, I don't know. I, I want my mom. I don't know where she is. And so they go up to this street vendor Paris like, well, let me, I'll be right back. I'm going to go try to find her. And then she just spots the mother across the street, ducking down between cars. And she's, so she's like, just hold on for a minute. And she goes and, and finds the, the mom hiding behind cars. And we find out that this is like the third time that the mom has tried to abandon her daughter because she's a single mom. And again, bad situation to be in, in Iran. And so she's trying to abandon her daughter in the hopes that she'll be taken in by some family that would give her a better life. So we just were kind of watching them huddling down behind these cars as the, the street vendors talking to the girl and then talking to some patrol officers who are around and they're, they're trying to find her mom. And eventually they, they just load the little girl into the back of a patrol car and drive off. And it's like, well, I guess you, you did it. Good, good job. You abandoned your daughter. So at this point, Pari kind of takes off and the... Mother is wandering the streets, having done what she'd set out to do, but kind of aimlessly walking around and I think pretty clearly heartbroken at what she had done, but yeah. feeling like that was the best opportunity she had to give her daughter a decent life. So she's wandering around and then a guy says, hey, would you like a ride? And she gets into this guy's car and they're driving and then they get to a checkpoint and the woman's like, oh my god, we can't do, you know, we can't do this. Uh, just say that I'm related to you or yeah, something. Yeah, please tell them that we're, you know, tell them that we're related or I'm married to you or something because this is not going to look good. Otherwise, they're going to think I'm up to something. And the guy's like, uh, no, I can't do that. And turns out he was an undercover police officer and he thought she was a prostitute. So they're at the checkpoint and she's sitting in the car and he, the undercover police officer gets out and he's talking to some of the other guys. And then they've picked up another woman who is working as a prostitute and the guy that had tried to pick her up. And so the the man's trying to argue to get out of trouble. Like, I didn't realize this is what she was. You know, I was just trying to help her out and I've got a a wife and kids and, you know, please don't do anything. And so while this is happening, the, the mother who had abandoned her daughter realizes she has an opportunity to get away. So she gets out and tries to slip away. And then we follow as the the prostitute is put into a van and taken to prison where she's placed into a cell with other women. And the camera goes around into the circular cell and we see, we didn't realize it at first, but like when we saw the scene again, we realized that there were the three women that we saw at the beginning at the phone booth, the three women who had escaped prison. Yeah, Nargis and Arizu and... And their the, other the, friend. Their other friend. It's like, oh. Well, then a prison guard answers the phone and starts calling for a woman named Solmas. And she's like, oh, no, there's no woman in, in the cell by that name. He's like, oh, yeah, she was transferred to this other ward. And uh, the name he calls out is the name of the same woman who at the very beginning of the movie had given birth to the baby girl. The end. The end. And it's like, what? How did? Where are we in time? Like, I don't understand. It just kind of looped back around on itself or something so that's kind of why we had to go back and be like wait what was yeah what, what happened i think what we realized you know is obviously this is later 
somehow, you know, things go badly and she ends up in prison. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like things were going to go bad just at the very beginning when they were yeah. talking about her husband divorcing her and everything because she'd had a girl. So that seems very possible. Yeah. But yeah, that is how the movie ends with it kind of appropriately circling back around. Yeah. So as you can tell, I think from the, the way we describe it, I mean, that's pretty much what you're given. So there's a lot of room for the audience to go in and try and fill in the gaps in the story to try to piece together why these women are in these situations. But really, the point of it is is really just showing how limited women are in Iranian society. Like, they, there is so little they, they can do. Yeah, and that's kind of the impetus for the director, Jafar Panahi, because this was the third movie that he'd made, and the first two movies were pretty kid-focused, like about young girls and... Then after he'd made his first two movies, I guess he just started reflecting on it. And he's like, well, I mean, what's going to happen to these young girls once they grow up and they enter Iranian society when they're faced with all these like limitations and restrictions? So that was the inspiration for him to make this movie was to kind of focus on those issues. Yeah, for sure. Panahid submitted The Circle to the Venice Film Festival without getting a permit in advance from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance in Iran. So they requested it, and uh, the permit was granted a couple days before the screening. Um, However, it was banned in Iran, as um, the cinema deputy of Iran said it was such a completely dark and humiliating perspective yeah. Which, yeah, definitely dark. Like Yeah, definitely dark. It doesn't paint Iran in a great light in yeah, terms of... How um, they treat women. How they treat women and, and, and their personal liberty and lack of agency. So Panahi was then banned from shooting movies after this, but it was lifted. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah, I think after nine months, the ban was lifted somehow. There must have been some kind of public outcry or something, I think is what I vaguely remember seeing. But he kind of ran into a lot of problems like that going forward. His first two movies were pretty kid-centric, but after that, he definitely sounded like, from what we read at least, it sounded like he took a turn towards making movies with more political commentary on how things were going for people in Iran. Yeah, and, and he knew that The Circle was, it was risky to put that out, and so he'd actually hidden several copies of the movie around the country, knowing that it was very possible that the government would get their hands on it and destroy the copies. So he hid as many copies as he could in the hopes that at least one of them would make it through yeah. and be able to be, be screened. Yeah, just crazy that you'd have to go to those links to protect your work, literally go and hide it from the government. Right. Well, this it gets even harder, as, uh, as we found out. Like, it, life for Panahi's gotten a lot harder since. Yeah, he's... Had a rough go of it more recently, for sure. Like, he was arrested in 2010, and uh, the alleged reasoning behind that was because he was working on a documentary that was critical of the 2009 elections with Ahadminejad. But his wife feels like that probably was just uh, a smokescreen to arrest him, like they'd had their eyes on him for a while. He obviously put out this movie and, and movies after that that were painting Iran in not necessarily the best light. So they... They had their sights set on him, but he was arrested in 2010, and he was sentenced to six years in prison, and then also was banned from really doing anything with movies for 20 years. Like, 
filming anything, writing screenplays, even doing interviews with the media, like foreign or Iranian media, he wasn't allowed to speak with them. And he was also banned from leaving Iran, unless there was like some sort of medical necessity or to, to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. He was trapped in Iran, even after his prison sentence was set to be over. Yeah, so the arrest itself um, inspired a number of high-profile actors and directors to start a petition to try and get Panahi freed, but obviously that hasn't worked so far. One thing I read was Juliette Binoche, for example, the, the French actress broke down in tears while she was up at the podium at the Cannes Film Festival, having heard that Panahi had gone on a hunger strike. So he was eventually released on bail at the end of that year, but still under the restrictions, no filmmaking. Like under house arrest. Under house arrest. So in 2012, a film was released called This Is Not A Film, which was made in tandem with the documentary director Majtaba Mirta Moss. I'm sure I'm butchering all these names really badly. So Panahi in this movie is, is simply sort of telling everybody about the film that he would make if he was able to make a film. And he's like sitting in his apartment, uh, reciting dialogue from his script and mapping out fictional landscapes on his rug and and that sort of thing. So anyway, they ended up making this film of Panahi talking about the film that he wants to make. And it was smuggled out of Iran on a USB stick that was hidden inside a cake. So I'm very interested to watch that. Cake-based crimes. Yeah, it's pretty intense. I don't know. I think like if I was at a checkpoint or something, I would just be destroying every cake that I saw. Like, <laughs> there's just, you know, the the old standby gag of putting a file or a hacksaw, baking it into a cake, and now there's an actual <laughs> proven case of a, a movie making it out of Iran because it was baked into a cake. Like, no cakes are going to be left undemolished yeah. at this point. That, that was the last undemolished cake to leave Iran. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the, real, the real tragedy. The real <laughs> the real tragedy here, not the fact that <laughs> what's going on with the director. sense... Yeah, this talented director is, like, forbidden from doing, from, you know, doing his craft, and other filmmakers are having to leave Iran to be able to make films. Please, just won't somebody think of the cakes. <laughs> won't somebody think of the cakes. Thank you. The, the real victims. The real, yeah. <laughs> It's fucked. It's fucked. It's a bad situation. Not even just, obviously women are, are in a, an extremely bad situation, but not to say that men aren't either. Like there are limits to what men are able to do freely in society, yeah. uh, which is something that Panahi was talking about in the interview we saw. Nobody's safe. Yeah. Really. And it's kind of inspiring that in, in spite of all that stuff that he's been through, he's still maintain a pretty uncompromised attitude towards the movies that he wants to make. There uh, was an article from The Guardian from, I think, 2010, where he was quoted as saying, I never censor myself. I don't make compromises. It's, it's very dangerous. If you censor yourself, it's worse than if the government censors you. Any filmmaker who does that thinking they can please the authorities is going against their own interests. Yeah, it's a pretty ballsy attitude to have. Yeah, I mean... For the situation he's in. Yeah. Just from the from the interview that we watched, it really seemed like he doesn't care too much about what other people think. He just, he wants to make these movies as the, the visions that he has in his head and he's not worried about... How other people take them or, yeah, or what they think about them. Or and, if they make money. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's like, you know, obviously I want people to see them, but this is my vision and this is what I want to put out there. 
And what happens from there, it's not really up to me and it's not really my concern. And he also mentioned that he pretty much doesn't watch other movies because he doesn't want his own vision to be tainted by anything else. Like, I think one of the quotes he said in that interview was, if he makes a movie that ends up being similar to something else without realizing it, it's okay because it's still coming from his pure vision, his idea of what this film should be, and without being adulterated by influences from other movies. So really interesting. He's just a really interesting guy just in general. Yeah. So. For sure. That's, that was the main, one of the main takeaways, at least, that I got from watching this and, and reading up about him. Like, we, I feel like we need to watch some of his other movies I now. totally agree. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, I think I might need to <laughs> upgrade my rating to don't not watch yeah. after talking about it. And that's kind of how I felt while I was watching it. I'm like, I feel like this is the kind of thing that I'm going to underrate. And then the more that I right. sit with it and think about it, the more that I'm going to like it. And so, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to walk back my previous rating and bump it up to a don't not watch. Awesome. Yep. Yep. It's um, a really great movie. Yeah, it's it's not like we were saying not the the easiest. It's not it's not a fun time. It's but it's watch. but it's certainly not the hardest film we've watched no, for this. No. Yeah, so that is it for this episode. Uh, we sing a song now about our, <laughs> the, the podcast. Uh, just our our <laughs> podcast and closing theme. Now we've just got <laughs> the the Tara and Andrew versus the Scarecrow movie guy anthem <laughs> closing. <laughs> Closing anthem. Closing dirge, I'd like to say. Yes, it's very mournful. It's uh, 45 minutes long, and it's... uh, (laughs) It's longer than the actual episode. Yeah, a lot of wailing. (laughs) So if you want to keep up on the podcast and what we're doing, you can search for Tara and Andrew Versus and and find us pretty much everywhere. We're on iTunes, Google Play. We've got our website, taraandandrewversus.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter... So feel free to check us out and follow us in any or all of those places. LinkedIn. Look for us on LinkedIn. Look, look for us for definite on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we would like to thank the, the great Seattle band Boat for allowing us to use their song lately off the album Setting the Paces. Thank you, Boat. Thank you, Boat. Um, and then finally, uh, we just also would like to encourage everybody to go out and support your local independent movie stores. If you're in Seattle, obviously Scarecrow is great. If you're in other non-Seattle areas. I'm sure there are independent video stores there that would appreciate your your patronage. So seek them out. Seek them out. I mean, I don't know how many places we could find a movie like The Circle at, apart from Scarecrow. Yeah. So you can find a lot of really cool gems that you wouldn't be able to access through Netflix or Hulu or anything like that. So check them out. Check it out. Um, And so until next time. Catch you. Catch you later, potato hags.